Hey, good evening, friends and family. Welcome to the table. My name is Matt Moberg, uh, one of the pastors here in this community, and we are head to toe enthused about the fact that even in the midst of us not being able to physically gather and, and, and be together, we still have this tech that enables us to do this virtually. So thank you for showing up. Thank you for being a part of this moment that we are in. Um, we say something at the beginning of this moment every week, and even though we're not physically together, I'm still going to say it. It's important that you understand that even if you pick up nothing uh, from what I'm about to offer to you, you will pick up something in this, though. I want you to know that who you are is more important than what you do, and if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Your substance, your story, it, it starts down within, not with whatever decorations we pick up along the way. And so if you hear nothing else, walk out with like fists clenched around that reality because it will carry you through your Mondays, Tuesdays, and all the hard days and the good days. Um, root yourself in that. Now, we are in a series right now, what is called The Shoulders Beneath Our Feet. It's derived from the idea that we understand that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And so we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to take the stories that preceded our story for granted. We want to actually identify, if we're standing on the, the shoulders of giants, who are these shoulders beneath our feet? And so we talked about St. Nick. We talked about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. last week. This week, I'm so excited about. This might be a three-hour sermon, so get cozy. But the reason why it is because of all the canonized saints in the Catholic Church, there, has, there is nobody that has been as formative in my own life as the Salvadorian saint Oscar Romero. And what's crazy about that is, you know, some other folk out of Cross Pass with this past week, they said, like, who's, who are we talking about this weekend? And I said, my favorite saint, Oscar Romero. And they go, uh, come in. Who's that? Not familiar with his story. It wasn't, it's not a part of like, um, uh, we don't grow up with the stories of Oscar Romero the way that we, we definitely should. And so I'm very excited to talk about this man who matters so much to me, and I'm asking you to stick it out with me because it matters to me that he also matters to you because he has a formative voice in the moment we are in. So I'm asking for the patience and your durability because I do want to give you a little context. You know, in the same way that we can't understand Dr. King without understanding Birmingham and Bull Connor in that moment that he came up in, you cannot understand the Salvadorian Saint Oscar Romero without understanding El Salvador and the space that he came to occupy. To understand El Salvador, I'm gonna try, I'm trying to think right now, how do I best do this? Uh, you, you have to go back further than just the past few centuries. We have to go about 500 years back, actually. Now, here's, here's how I'm gonna set up the, the history. So behind me is this painting. I just started yesterday, I'm kind of working on right now. And um, it's, it's not a masterpiece. I'm, I'm not showing it to you right now for that purpose, but it's a painting of St. Oscar Romero. And I painted him with different shades of indigo, blue and I have intention of putting brown color uh, to kind of represent coffee inside of there and that is very purposeful. Why? Not just because I like blue a lot, I do like blue a lot, but to understand El Salvador and to understand where this country shifted dramatically, you have to understand its roots of indigo blue. 500 years ago, when the Spanish invaders came, the conquistadors, they came over, they took over the land. They were looking for um, space, they're looking for resources, they're looking for ways to make a profit off of whatever is available to them in that moment. One of the things that they found to be so helpful were the coastal plains of El Salvador, because on these plains, there was very fertile ground that you could grow the plant indigo, which could then create the dye blue. Now, this is a time where you didn't have like uh, 
Windsor and Newton creating all these different paint colors. You couldn't just run down to your local Dick Blick to pick up whatever color you wanted. And so dyes, paints at this time, dyes in particular was a huge booming business. You could make a lot of money in the dye business because it wasn't readily available at that time. So they loved what these coastal plains were offering to them. What they didn't love though was that there were people already living there. There was a Mayan culture that was deeply rooted in the land and had been so for thousands of years. And so when the Spanish invaders come with their weapons and their new technology, and they recognize that these people are an obstacle between us and where we want to be, they need to be removed. And so we've seen this the tale as old as time. Happens in our own country still to this day. You have a violent, terroristic, uh, evil takeover of the land on behalf of the invaders. And so the people had to flee from the plains and go up into the high altitude area where the volcanoes were, where they then kind of regathered themselves with those who had survived the terror and started to form a new community. And that was how things went for much of the history of El Salvador until you get to about the 1850s, like somewhere in the midway point in the 19th century where over in Europe, there's a new coffee industry and market that just burst open and people wanted coffee. Now, now that was a thing. Well, to make good coffee, you need really good soil. And the coastal plains did not have the right kind of soil to make that kind of coffee. And so while the Spanish invaders were making tons of money in the dye business already, they recognized that we need to get to a higher altitude to make some good coffee out of good soil. That space that we need is where those people now are. And so the same thing that happened 500 years ago is now happening in the middle of the 19th century. And so through violence, it was driven by greed. El Salvador becomes this country where 16 families owned all the livable, farmable land. And among them are these landless, indigenous peasant class who rent land from the families to grow enough food to feed themselves and their families while selling the rest of the food to make a profit for those who own the lands. And so although El Salvador declared independence from Spain in 1821, the legacy of colonialism, it continued throughout the 20th century. The, the mere absolute power in the country, it just shifted from Spanish hands to Salvadorans hands who are of European ancestry. But the power disparities, um, the gaps between the poor and the rich and, and even just the, the poor's ability to access basic needs like healthcare and education and a livable income, all these things that we need to survive. It was growing water on water until these owners owned about 95% of the land and left everybody else as a virtual surf. These, this tiny group of people who owned the lands, these 16 families, they essentially maintained power throughout the 20th century. From 1933 to 1980, all but one president was a military dictator. Through fraudulent elections, fear, violence, and terror, they maintained their grasp on the top seat on the throne. They were the ones who kept everything in order. And if you stepped up against them, they would stomp on you real quick. And this started to happen more and more because around 1930s, you have at the same time where their people are desperate. There's a new group of people in Europe who are asking questions like, are the systems actually good? Like the results that we have at hand right now, is this really the way that we want it always to be? Is there a better way forward? People like Karl Marx and Engels, they started to ask questions and offer critiques on capitalism. And, and just the very fact that those conversations were happening now brought hope and stirred up the air of revolution across the pond to those in Central America who said, maybe, maybe it's not. In El Salvador alone, there was this massive uprising of primarily indigenous people 
and it resulted in what is known today as the massacre because the government heard and they saw this uprising people starting to organize for a better future for the country and they responded by slaughtering 30,000 people men women children they killed them all and so it felt like hope had been lost but then they heard news from the north in Cuba there was a lawyer there who was taking up all these different pro bono cases to defend and work for the poor in the midst of the same kind of oppressive society and an oppressive regime there this man got people together and said like we cannot keep doing this we can't just keep running our heads into the same kind of wall and expecting different results we need to overthrow the government we need a more equitable system that man's name is Fidel Castro now there's a lot of different things that I'm not going to get into right now that we could talk about when we talk about Fidel Castro and we should talk about it at some point but it's important to understand that when he successfully overthrew that government and he was able to create space for people to have access to healthcare and education for the very first time I mean Castro's regime when they took over they instituted the maybe like the most successful literacy program in the history of humanity. I mean, it's up there with as far as the effectiveness of it all. Like they were there's not a lot of parallels you can find in human history. But for the point of this conversation, I don't want to dive deep into Fidel Castro, but I do want us to understand that for those on the south who were stuck in oppressive situations when they heard news that there was a change that had happened and the people had overthrown the government, that created all kinds of hope. That gave people a, a renewed sense of it is actually possible. This could be a new tomorrow for us as well. And so people started to organize. People started to galvanize. People started to, to recruit one another. You started to have um, teacher unions and student labor unions and uh, women's groups that were, were trying to gather for the sake of asking better questions about the future that they all were in pursuit of. The government response started to kill those leaders. The government response started to send death squads out to assassinate different leaders that were the heads of these different organizations to try to snuff out that spark as quickly as possible. They put so much work into shutting down the revolution that they never asked questions about why people were becoming revolutionaries. They didn't think about the desperation and what it was actually fueling. Because again, let me just remind you that the reality on the ground in El Salvador was 2% of the population controlled 97% of the land. The 16 richest families owned the same amount of land that was being used by 230,000 poor folk. These poorest families had no land whatsoever. They were forced to sleep in ditches, in muddy fields. Hungry farm workers were beaten or shot for eating a piece of the very produce that they were producing. Mines and factories, they operated under this idea that it would be cheaper to replace a dead or crippled worker than it would be to repair defective equipment. At this time in El Salvador, 60% 60% of all babies died at birth and 75% of the survivors suffered through severe malnutrition. Hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children died from diseases that could have been cured by basic medications. Listen to the cries of the poor. This is Exodus 3 when God hears the cries of those afflicted and paid in bondage in the oppressive systems of Egypt. And he says, I, I can't just sit by and do nothing. I, I'm, I have a preferential inclination for the poor. I'll, I'll, uh, that's my people. Those in pain are those I'm with. Jesus himself says, whatever you do for the least of these, you have done it also for me. There was nothing being done for the least of these people. And so of course there's gonna be uprisings at hand. And thankfully the Catholic church at this time started to really listen to the cries of the poor and remember the words of the Christ. And while there was revolutions happening within Central America, there was also an uprising happening within the Vatican. The Council of Vatican II is called, which Vatican II is it's from 1962 to 1965, and it creates this new set of reforms. And here's what it did. 
prior to 1962 or 65, so if you have grandparents that, um, or just parents who grew up devout Catholics, they would go to the Catholic mass. And in that Catholic mass, it was, it was all scripture was read in Latin. The priest, when he's leading the service, he's going to have his back turned to the, cr the congregation the whole time. It was very different. Vatican II said, maybe we're prioritizing the wrong things. Maybe it'd be right for us to prioritize the people instead. They came out and they said, you could read the Bible in a tongue that is different than Latin. And it's still reading the Bible revolutionary idea. For us who are just growing up with 10,024 different like Bible translations, um, you might be like, oh, cool, cool. That's, that's great. Take it for granted real quick. In Latin America though, this change changed everything. Because all of a sudden the peasant class that didn't know Latin, but certainly wanted to honor the tradition of the people, all of a sudden they are sitting down and they're reading the scripture for themselves. And suddenly what they are taking in isn't lining up with what they were told. Because it wasn't just a shift from Latin to Spanish, it was a shift from Latin to common Spanish, the kind that is employed by common peasant folk on the street when they bounce into one another at the corners. And so all this time growing up, they were told to focus on passages like the poor will always be with you, Jesus said, and to, to respect your elders and slaves obey your masters and these kinds of things. It's slave master theology, the same kind that we saw in the 19th century and still in many ways see here in our country today. But now these people are reading the text for themselves. And as they're doing so, they're going, you guys, God is for us. Now, I mean, like, if you read these stories, if you just, if you just read the words of Jesus himself, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read the way that Jesus also was born in a poor, rural, indistinct town and grew up inside of an oppressive structure that was prioritizing the wealthy over the needs of the poor. If you read these stories and the things that God says and the things that Jesus says, it is very clear that not only is God with all people, God is particularly with the poor folk. Those who are stuck underneath the boots of regimes that are oppressive, evil, and they're not actually setting it up for the flourishing of all. They start reading these stories and they start recognizing that God really loves us. And the way that the world is structured, the way that El Salvador is structured right now, is not reflecting the love that God has for us. And all of a sudden the uprising continues to grow because God is on our side now. And as expected, the killings continue to happen. As they were assassinating different leaders of different parts of the movements, this is where the government, aside from being wrong and evil and morally bankrupt and all the other things we should say about it, the government tactically just made a terrible mistake because as we know throughout history, especially the history of the church, as the church father, father uh, Tertullian once said, the more you mow us down, the more in numbers we grow. The blood of Christians is the seed. If you kill people, you are creating martyrs and martyrs fuel the car that is revolution. And so they recognize that we can no longer just kill people and create martyrs because it's antithetical to what we're actually about. We need to, instead of creating martyrs, we need to create victims. And so you would have in the middle of the night, people pulled from their homes and completely disappeared. People arrested on the side of the street for just being poor and completely disappear. And at the end of it all, it ultimately lead to over 300,000 individuals vanishing, a million people fleeing their homeland, and an additional million starting to live as homeless fugitives. Why? Because all they wanted was for a slice of the pie. All they wanted was essentially what FDR's New Deal set out to bring about. We want uh, access to healthcare, access to education, a way to put food on the plates of our kids at our home. We want land redistribution. We want to have things be more equitable. We're not asking to take everything, but we are asking for a part of it. 
we want things to be fair. And in times like this, in the same way where you have in 1930s, 40s, Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Confessing Church, in times like this, you have to ask, what is the response and the role that the church needs to play in society? It's the same question that should be hanging over our heads as a table. Even if we are a small community, what is our part that we need to play in this particular historical moment that we are in with the, the city and the context that we are inhabiting? This was a question that was hanging over the Roman Catholic Church in El Salvador, and there was a vacant spot for the archbishop, who was basically the pastor over the whole thing, the one who oversaw the whole show. When the Vatican set out to fill this vacant spot in this critical time, they looked for somebody who was committed to the cause of the church and indifferent to the wars and the injustices outside of it. And so they chose this man who was this conservative um, pastor, Enneagram 6. He was mild-mannered and gentle and really believed that my sole purpose as a bishop is to be faithful to um, helping people be devoted to the ways of Christ and devoted to the church. And the last thing I need to do is stir up more controversy than there already is in the land. So I'm gonna take a seat on the sidelines and just pray my way through this thing. It, when you think about Dr. King writing that letter from the Birmingham jail, and you think about how he's writing to the white clergymen who are telling him to stop being such a rabble rouser and stop like making so much noise and causing so many problems and being this, this force for um, riling people up, just be patient. You know, things take time. Be patient. This man who became the Archbishop of El Salvador, he would have been on the receiving end of that letter. This man was Oscar Romero. Romero's ecclesiastical career before he became Archbishop was that of a shy traditional priest who was just averse to politics. And he was most comfortable inside of the walls of his own temple where he could study, he could pray, he could meet with people. But the more he stayed inside, the more the world kept changing outside. And while the world spun madly on on the outside, in Latin America, there were priests who were going out into rural communities to help organize efforts for the poor. Priests who would go out into these rural communities and start up these conversations about how do, we, how do we best enter into the struggle together on how we can live lives of dignity. This is again, no small thing. This is a big transformation because for centuries, you had the church telling poor folk and oppressed people that their suffering was congruent with God's will. But now you have priests going out to the oppressed people and they're telling them that there is an unjust, the principalities and the powers as Paul used to call it, an unjust economic system that is keeping its boot on your neck. It was God's desire for them to live decent lives of dignity. And so the poor were gaining support of the religious authorities in the land to stand up and organize and defend themselves against the landowners, the oligarchy, the wealthiest people in one of the most unequal regions in the world. And while these priests are out there doing that, the priests are finding themselves in the crosshairs of the government and priests are getting killed. Priests were being chased, they were being tortured, they were being killed. Um, but Romero wasn't because Romero was never involved. He just didn't see that being the church's role to meddle with affairs like this. And that's exactly why the Vatican chose him. They wanted somebody who was safe. They wanted somebody who would um, maintain the status quo. And when he was chosen to be Archbishop, as gentle and mild-mannered and sweet of a guy as he was, this was crushing for all of those who were working on behalf of liberation. Crushing for all of those who were going out to those rural areas and putting their lives on the line for the sake of a better tomorrow for everybody. Everybody basically gave up on Romero the moment he became Archbishop and said, we're kind of screwed because the top dog in the Catholic Church is is not actively on our side 
Everybody cast him out except for his one friend, his fellow priest that he's known for years, Retiro Grande. Grande kept reaching out to his friend, Archbishop Romero, in hopes that he could get him to just hear the cries of the poor, in hopes that he could get him to just take in some of these stories. Grande was this spiritual giant when it came to the works of liberation and justice. Grande was somebody who consistently put his life on the line for the betterment of others. And so Grande never gave up on his friend, Archbishop Oscar Romero. But then everything changed on March 12th, 1977, when Grande was driving out to one of these rural areas with some poor peasants in the car who he was bringing them to a place where they could actually have access to food. And there was a death squad that was sent out by the government that shot up the car that he was driving, killing him, an elderly man, and a small child. When Bishop Romero heard this news, he went to see the body of his fallen friend. And people who write on his biography, I mean, this is the catalytic moment in his life. When he, you know, in the same way where Jesus has that catalytic shift in his story, when he hears that his close friend John and his cousin John is, has been killed, when Romero goes and he stands over the body of his friend and he sees this body of a poor elderly man and he sees a young boy who's bloodied up and dead, everything changed for him. And so the day after Grande's death, Romero stepped up to the pulpit and he preached a sermon that stunned the whole country. While the newspapers and the propaganda that was coming up from the government was talking about how Grande was a terrorist, somebody who was consistently trying to um, ruin El Salvador. The Archbishop of El Salvador stood up to the pulpit and defended Grande. He demanded social and economic justice for the poor, and he called everybody to take up Grande's prophetic work where he had left it off. To protest the government's participation in the murder of his friend and to show himself as one who he considered among the everyone needs to participate in this work, Romero closed the parish school for three days after, and that following Sunday, he shut down all the masses in the country. I just imagine that. Imagine that after, you know, Breonna Taylor was killed, or after Flando Castillo, or George Floyd, or Jamar Clark, or you have the head of all churches in the United States of America saying, nobody's going to church right now because we need to pause. We need to recognize the weight of what just went down, and we need to start calling out evil for what it is. The only mass that happened on that Sunday was the one that Romero held in honor of his fallen friend, that elderly man, this young boy. And over 100,000 people showed up for it. Within months, more priests, catechists, and church workers were regularly targeted and assassinated. And so Romero spoke out even more forcefully. When the new president who had won an election that was fraudulently run, when he was being installed as the president, Romero didn't show up to bless the installation, which is something that had never been done before. He even followed up with critiques on the radio against the president and naming the injustices at hand, which had never been done before. Romero's truth-telling campaign was consistent, backed by character, and it was deeply subversive because it pushed people towards a non-violent response to violent evil from the government. Whenever he spoke, everybody stood still. And as he did so, he kept reminding the people that the role of the church is not to be measured by the government's support, but rather by its own authenticity, its evangelical spirit of prayer, trust, sincerity, and justice, its opposition to abuses. In San Salvador, there's this beautiful new cathedral that was being constructed and there was a lot of money going into it and it was taking a lot of time and Romero shut the whole thing down. He said that when the war is over, when the hungry are fed, when the poor are given the dignity that they deserve as human beings, when children are able to be educated, then we can pick up the bricks once more and begin reconstructing this cathedral, but not now. Every day he would go out to these poor 
communities and he would sit down and hear their stories and he would enter into solidarity with the ones who were grieving the, uh, the loss of somebody who had been killed or just disappeared. He took on this work of going to the city dumps to look for the bodies, to find them and to bring them back to where they belonged, where they could be given a proper burial. By late 1979 and 1980, his Sunday sermons started to issue kind of their strongest calls for conversion to justice and an end to the ongoing massacres. He said, to those who bear in their hands or in their conscience the burden of bloodshed, of outrages, of the victimized, innocent or guilty, but still victimized in their human dignity, I say, be converted. You cannot find God on the path of torture. God is found on the way of justice, conversion, and truth. And as he's having more force in his message and being more direct with the enemy at hand, he ends up speaking directly to them. Matter of fact, he started sermons by saying, to my killer out there, the one who will eventually take my life, I want you to know that you are already forgiven for what you are about to do. And I hope that one day you and I, we can hug and embrace and enjoy eternity together. I want you to know you are deeply loved right now. But I also want you to know that if you pursue this path of violence, of torture, it is antithetical to God's desires. Because if you kill me, it'll be just a waste of time because you can take me out but I will rise again in the spirit of the Salvadoran people. On March 23rd in 1980, as death threats had become a daily thing, Romero stepped up to the pulpit to lead the mass and he gave what was probably his most direct sermon as the whole country leaned forward and listened in. And Romero said, I'd like to make an appeal in a special way to the men in the army. Brothers, each one of you is one of us. We are the same people. The farmers and peasants that you kill are your own brothers and sisters. When you hear the words of a man telling you to kill, think instead in the words of God. Thou shalt not kill. No soldier is obliged to obey an order contrary to the law of God. In his name and in the name of our tormented people who have suffered so much and whose laments cry out to heaven, I implore you, I beg you, I order you, Stop the repression! The next day, on March 24th, 1980, Romero was in a hospital grieving with those who were losing loved ones. And there he led this mass inside of a small hospital chapel and he gave it in honor of a woman who had died a year prior to. In this sermon, he used the parable of wheat that Jesus first employed. When he came to a conclusion, he reached over for the elements, the blood and the bread, and as he lifted up the cup, a man that was sent by the government was sitting in the back pew and he stood up and he killed the archbishop. His blood mixed with the blood of Christ, the wine, as it, as it leaked through the cracks on the floor. With the Salvadoran saint slain and now gone and removed from the scene, his funeral became the largest demonstration in Salvadoran history, some say in the history of Latin America. And the government was so afraid of the grieving people there 
that they decided to throw bombs into that crowd and they opened fire, killing some 30 people and injuring hundreds more. And so tonight, we are going to remember Oscar Romero as a saint, as a martyr, as a champion of the poor, as a prophet of justice. Romero's voice continues to beckon us. It's the same voice that Christ first extended to us. And it is that voice to enter into solidarity with the poor and the oppressed, to listen to the stories, to think with them, to feel with them, to walk with them, to listen to them, to serve them, to stand with them, become one of them, and eventually, perhaps, even die with them. I encourage you, you know, as we close up this message, and I appreciate your patience with it, I encourage you to take a deeper dive on Oscar Romero's life. It is powerful. Read some of his sermons. Feel the spirit of the moment that he was in. He had the choice to be safe and stay on the sidelines and removed from all the affairs. And instead, though, when he stood over the body of his slain friend, when he heard the cries of the people, when he saw the plight of the poor, he refused to be a chaplain to the empire, and especially one that had its boots on the people's necks. Any spirituality that nurtures abstract love and generic unity and vague justice it's worse than just being useless. A Jesus-shaped spirituality, it needs to move us to love specific people, to struggle for tangible solidarity, and it challenges us to move for a particular form of justice. I mean, if you have a spirituality that provides you with positive vibes and fields and comfort because it helps you cope with the pain of the world as it actually is, but it never actually addresses the pain of the world for what it is, then it is just ultimately a spirituality of empire. This is why it is possible to engage in what might seem to be deep spiritual practices that are ultimately nurturing a spirituality of disconnection which is just another way of saying spirituality of empire. It's this washed down, Christ absent, white middle-class spirituality of apathy, and that is not how we honor the shoulders beneath our feet. And it's maybe a good question we could ask ourselves is, in your walk with the Christ, what is the cost that you have paid for it? Because as much as we talk about how Christ provides us with community and connection, a deeper sense of self, that is also true, and we don't wanna lose sight of that, it also comes with a cost. It also is asking you to actually love. And love is nothing more than ascribing worth to another at a point where it costs you something to do so. You took a hit to hold them up. And so what is the cost of following Christ in your life? Y'all are loved. Thank you for being with us tonight. I so appreciate you. No matter who you are. No matter who you are. No matter who you are. No matter who you are or what you've done. Who you love. Who you love. No matter who you love or what you've lost. Where you've gone or where you've stayed. Where you've gone or where you've stayed. Where you've gone or the places that you've stayed. There's a seat for you. There is a seat for you. There's 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 a seat for you at the table. Know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. You belong. You belong. Beloved, you belong. Beloved, you belong. You always have a place at the table because you are a beloved child of God and you belong.